there friends, it's Jo Deng here and I'm part of Grimea Baptist Church, which is a faith community in Southern Sydney. It's great to have you with us through this podcast, which is part of our May Mission Month experience. Today we are tackling the complex topic of ethical consumerism. With the advent of constantly stocked goods on shelves, seemingly never-ending food supplies in our supermarket, and fast fashion that is just so cheap, who really pays the price? It's never fashionable if our luxury means someone else's poverty. And this is why we're exploring this area, so that we can be the change to see love and justice prevail. Our guest speaker, Gershon Nimbolka, is the advocacy manager of Baptist World Aid, and he is passionate to see the church without God's heart for justice. He is the project coordinator and lead author of the Ethical Fashion Report and Electronics Industry Trends Reports, which provides world-leading research that examines the practices of corporations around the world to mitigate the risk of slavery and exploitation. We hope you get some great insights from Gershon, and may God speak to you as you listen. We recognise ethical consumerism is a complex and challenging issue for our society, and here at GBC we'll be continuing to unpack this with ongoing conversations. Thanks, great to be back here at Gaimia Baptist Church. I uh, heard Jodine complaining earlier in the service about how you guys still haven't mastered her name, Jodie Jolene. Jodine's a fairly easy name to wrap your tongue around, like when you've got a name like Gershon, which a lot of people aren't familiar with. I grew up getting a lot of gherkin, so I've learned to respond to that, which is, you know, Jolene's a lot nicer than gherkin. Um, my surname's Nimbolka, middle name's Davin, which spelt suspiciously like Devon, the lunch meat. So we've got like gherkin and Devon, two, two parts of the sandwich already there. And then when you're in high school, the jump from Nimbolka to hamburger is really easy. So. I've learned to respond to hamburger as well, so if you forget my name, that will work too. Um, I'm here to talk about ethical consumption. Um, and we've, there's so much in this topic to unpack. Jodine picked up that idea in the quote from Mike Gore, who sometimes is the other Indian in social justice in Sydney, this is when we get together, we refer to each other. Um, he was talking about how it's so hard for our faith to survive prosperity. Um, one of the dimensions that we could probe really deeply into and is worth discussing as a church and a church community is the way our consumption in a consumerist capitalist society becomes this massive idol that stops us from worshipping. We could spend a lot of time on that. We could spend a lot of time talking about how our consumption as a society and as Christians in that society are degrading the planet, having huge impacts on our wildlife and how they're treated, having huge impacts on the way our planet is able to function and thrive for our generation and future generations. We could talk about the way our consumption stops us from being the kind of generous people that God calls us to. We're so caught up in image and status and buying stuff or having experiences that we're not able to give as freely and as abundantly as God calls us to. Um, I'd love to spend time on each of those with you today, but we've got about 20 minutes, so I'm going to break off a chunk and talk to you about something that Gaimia Baptist Church has been on a journey with, thinking about how is our stuff made and what impact does that have on the people that make it. Um, you've participated in fair trade fairs, and fair trade is a movement all about trying to get, make sure that the workers that make our stuff are empowered and treated well. Um, you've campaigned alongside Baptist World Aid, calling on companies, chocolate companies and fashion companies to produce things differently. So I'm going to go into that in a bit more detail today. I'm going to talk to you about some stories of change that we're seeing and how you can be a part of that as well. Before I get there, um, sorry, always, um, is that on? Uh, I'll hand that to Jodine to fix for me. Can I just go to the next slide? Um, somebody at the back, perfect. Um, who, uh, who saw the royal wedding last night? Hands off. Yeah, about the same proportion as in the morning service. Um, I'm feeling a bit more Republican than I normally feel at the moment. Um, not because like every time I try to read the news, I'm bombarded with stories about Harry and Meghan and what she was wearing. Um, that I had dinner plans organized for last night, organized weeks ago, 
And the people that I had dinner organized with called me up in the middle of the week and said, oh, we're bumping you for dinner. Going to watch the royal wedding. Coverage starts from 6 p.m. You're out. I'm like, oh, that's not very nice of you. Um, but I'm amazed at how much as a society we are just taken up with the spectacle of these two people, who I'm assuming almost none of us, probably none of us in this room have ever met, getting married. Um, there's something about their status as royalty that just grabs our attention and draws us to them. The, the pomp and the spectacle and the celebrities, I get that that's all there, but almost every news, uh, news site that I read led with this as the key story. The Guardian was very kind to have a, like a Republican button that you could press that made all those stories disappear. Um, but pretty much every other one led with stories about the royal wedding. Um, every time you're watching news coverage, listening to the radio on the long trip from Newcastle into Sydney, um, this kept coming up. We're just caught up with royalty, and there's something about that. And it's interesting because royalty doesn't have the power it once had. Um, but I'm going to come back to why I think that might be significant and why sometimes our perception of royalty as the church might be a bit distorted. And to get there, I'm going to go back to the beginning. Um, thank you. The very beginning, Genesis 1, and talk to you about the image of God. Um, so this passage has been debated by theologians for centuries, um, and it's a theme that has such resonance with us in our faith. We develop so much of our identity out of this idea that we are created in the image of God. So this is what it says in Genesis 1, verse 26. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Um, so I don't know what it means to you or what you hear when someone says, you are created in the image of God. Um, there's something that sparks up in us about our our divine spark um, that's there for us. For many people, it talks to this idea that there's something inherent in us that is godlike. Our capacity to be self-aware, to be sentient, our capacity to reason and work through things in the way that animals can't or other beings can't. For some, it talks to us about our capacity to relate the way that God relates, to have relationship and build connection it might be about our virtues and the fact that we can express the virtues that Christ embodies, love and kindness and gentleness. Um, I suspect there is truth in all of those. But the scholarship on this, at least, is saying that there was a really specific meaning that the writer of Genesis wanted to pull out for us when he said that we are created in the image of God. Um, so the scholar Richard Middleton, who's done a fair bit of work on this and reviewed the literature, so that there's a growing consensus in the 20th century that what this phrase is about, this idea of the image of God, when you compare it to text in the ancient Near East and you look at the clues that are in the Bible, what all of that points to is that we are created to be members of the royal court, to be kings and queens alongside God himself, to be co-creators participating in his work. So if you look at the way this phrase was used in the ancient Near East, the people that were making claims about being in the image of God, they were using it as a way to claim their royalty, their, their king status. And that carries through to our culture today. You think of Queen Elizabeth, um, she's the head of the Church of England, and she's the head of the Church of England because as queen, she is seen as God's elect, and something about her bloodline so goes the tradition, carries that special status from God with it. What the writer of Genesis is trying to do is universalize that. To say it's not just Harry and Megan that have special status, that have some divine right or responsibility, but each and every one of us as human beings created by God are here to share and shape his world according to his purposes. And if you think about where this phrase comes up in the context of Genesis, it's the end of that God creating the universe, creating the heavens and the earth, and pausing it each day to declare its goodness. And then on day six, coming to us and saying, 
here we are, I'm creating men and women, and here it is, my beautiful and abundant creation for you to share and shape alongside me. Every one of you, this is your divine right and your entitlement and your purpose. Um, and it is, it's a beautiful creation. He talks about it's not just functional, it's this wonderful abundance that we all get to participate in. Um, Genesis 2 talks about how like, the fruits are not just good for food but pleasing to the eye. It's there for us to aesthetically enjoy as well. Our divine right to share and shape. But of course, we don't all get to live that out in the ways that I think God intends. When you think about the way poverty and then slavery mar and damage our capacity to share and shape this creation with God. And think about how damaging they are. So you think about someone that is desperately poor and in extreme poverty. One, clearly they don't get to share in the full abundance of creation. They're struggling to find food often. In terms of shaping the destiny for their children, their capacity to do that is so limited by their poverty. They're often the, the amount of control and agency they have over their lives and the lives of their children is limited to whether they can even feed them. Maybe the choice is, I'll sacrifice a meal and give my child a meal, and that's the extent of what they've got in terms of shaping the world. Or if you think of slavery, it's probably the most extreme form of poverty and perhaps one of the most degrading uh, conditions you can find yourself in, in terms of being taken away from being able to live out that image that God has called us to. Not only do you not get to share the abundance of the world and shape, make it shape it around you, you don't get to control your own body. You don't even get to rule over what you do with your time or how your body is used. About two years ago, I was in India, um, and I met a young girl that demonstrated this for me in, I guess, one of the most heart-wrenching ways I've ever encountered. So we were in Tamil Nadu, and I was there meeting people that worked in fabric mills. Um, Tamil Nadu is one of the biggest fabric production regions of the world. So the fabrics that get made in Tamil Nadu wind up across the four corners of the globe in clothes that I'm sure some of us are wearing today. And we were just there meeting young girl after young girl to hear their stories about what it's like um, it's almost an exclusively female workforce that has been getting younger and younger. And we're just hearing stories about what it's like to work in these fabric mills. So Anita Flora, um, who I met in a small home, it was about three meters by three meters squared, just one room, sort of a wood fire kitchen in one corner, mattress on the other side. Um, the only light was coming from the flickering candles that you can see there in that photo. Mosquitoes buzzing everywhere. Um, sat down and told me what it was like to work in the fabric mills. Her father had left her and her mother when she was about 11. Um, so her mother did what she could to try to earn as much money as she could to keep their family afloat, took construction jobs, took whatever contract work she could get, but nobody would pay her enough. I mean, the wages that they were willing to pay were so low that she couldn't even keep enough food on the table for the family. So Anita at the age of 13, took it upon herself to say, I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to get a job at one of the local fabric mills. Um, the fabric mills were only too happy to employ her, and almost from the day she started, the exploitation began. They didn't pay her what they promised, they paid her well below what the legal wages were. At the end of every shift, she was forced to work overtime. It's like menial, laborious work, and she was forced to do extra hours of it every single day. When she was sick, she was forced to come to work under threat of getting a pay deducted or losing her job. She told stories about how sometimes the power would go out or there'd be problems. And while the power was out, the male co-workers, if they had a bit too much time on their hands or feeling a bit frisky, would start coming over and molesting and harassing the young girls. And I asked Anita, what would you like to change? How should things be? She had like a, it was amazing, despite the hardship that she was going through, she had like a fiery passion about her. And I remember her like walking me in these like determined eyes and just saying, they should treat us like people. 
She kind of gets it, right? There's this divine spark in all of us that we all acknowledge. People should not be treated that way. That shouldn't be the conditions that we're forced to endure. I'm sure some of that connects back to this divine responsibility to share and shape the world together. We all intuitively know that that's not right. She went on to say that they should pay us decent wages, and of course they should. They shouldn't force us to work overtime. They should, take us, they should look after us. They should let us rest when we're sick. They shouldn't turn a blind eye to the men that are abusing us. One of the things that most disturbs me about that is, as I said, we're connected to Anita through the stuff that we buy, and girls like her around the world. Girls that are having their capacity to live out their image of God marred by the systems and structures that they find themselves in. Um, so it's not just Anita. This is, the problem is prolific. So this is a quick snapshot of exploitation by the numbers. Um, the International Labour Organization and Walk Free estimate that there are about 40 million people in modern forms of slavery in the world. So that covers off people in forced marriage that are often in forced labor situations as well, and domestic duties and all sorts of other horrendous things, but also people that are in straight forms of forced labor, so working in manufacturing, in agriculture, in mines, in the seafood industry, on boats. Um, and all those people often have points that connect back to the supply chains of massive companies. One of the things that we... When you look at this graph here, it breaks down where or which regions of the world um, the majority of forced laborers and modern slaves can be found. I mean, there's a bit of information there, but one of the most striking things for me is that the majority of them, more than 60%, are found in our region, the Asia-Pacific region, which is also the region where most of our stuff gets made. It's a direct reminder of our connection to this problem. The majority of slaves in the world are in our backyard. And it's not just slavery that's the problem, it's child labour as well. So when we talk about child labour, we're not just talking about people doing weekend work or working in their parents' business, we're talking about work that stops kids from being able to live the kind of lives that all kids should live. They're, it's inhibiting their education, it's stopping their development. If you think about the worst forms of child labour, that's the kind of work that involves them working in the sex industry, being trafficked, working down mines, or working with chemicals that are just hazardous to their development. About 151.6 million children throughout the world are in situations of child labour. The vast majority of them are in agriculture, so they're making things like cotton or food, and again, that winds up on our shelves. Half of those are in the worst forms of child labour, and their lives are terrible. And again, we're connected to this. These are things that we inadvertently can wind up being complicit in. It's not, a, it's not a new phenomenon either. Like, I mean, this exploitation goes back to time immemorial. Um, at the time of Jesus, James was condemning the people that were exploiting their workers. And this is what he has to say in James chapter 5, verse 3. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. So, uh, caution to the rich. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. I think it's a great reminder that God does not stand for this type of exploitation. That the cries of the exploited reach Him and He is ready to respond. I think none of us are in a position where we'd ever want to be directly exploiting anyone. But we also have so much power about, over these conditions of exploitation. We too created in the image of God to share and shape this world. And the people here, I mean, this Gaimea community, come from one of the richest regions, not just in Sydney, not just in our state, but on the planet. We are so wonderfully blessed with so much power, the power to vote, the power to speak up about issues, and the power to work out how we use that phenomenal resource that we have to shape the world around us. And I think if we're not being conscious about the way we consume, if we're just making decisions because they're the easy decisions to make, 
then we wind up being complicit in the exploitation of people like Anita. And again, I don't think that's a place that any of us want to be in. But I know this is hard, right? Like, it's not easy just to go, okay, I don't want to buy stuff that have young girls being exploited in it. I don't want to buy stuff that has slavery in it and go, okay, I'm just going to buy from this company and it's all sorted. It takes a lot of work and we don't think that there's any simple answer. It's a constant process of constantly asking what companies are doing, who you're buying from, and how do you shape your purchasing. One of the things that Baptist World Aid has tried to do is make that journey easier. And some of that's come from the church. Like, we used to be campaigning on issues of, say, cotton slavery in Uzbekistan. Um, we focused on this very specific issue. We had some big wins on it. But people from this Catalyst group and others came back to us as we were campaigning and said, it's great that we can tackle cotton in one region of the world. But what about the rest of the supply chain? How do we know that the stuff that we're buying isn't being made with exploited labor? So we started to look at the systems that companies have in place and decided to put together a report. Um, in 2013, we launched our first report into the fashion industry. We've followed that up with about seven other reports in the chocolate industry and the electronics industry. Um, the fascinating thing about that first report is that we were all deeply concerned about that question, how is my stuff being made and how are the people that are making it being treated? We launched that report thinking it's going to get some traction and people will be interested in answering that question. Just before it, the Bangla in Bangladesh, a massive factory collapsed and killed 1,100 garment workers. It was the biggest industrial accident that the industry had ever seen. And straight away, people sat up and they were desperate for the same answers that we were. How is our stuff being made? Christians around the country grabbed it, the public grabbed it, and we've seen huge changes in companies since because of all the public pressure, because people are choosing to purchase differently, plus all the pressure they're getting from the media. So this is our latest report, the sort of snapshot of statistics. We graded 114 companies in the 2018 report, which was launched last month. Um, most of the companies sitting around the middle, 18 companies got an A, 11 got an F, because they just weren't transparent about what they're doing. So we can't be sure that they're doing anything, or if they are doing stuff, they're not confident about talking about it. There's also been tremendous progress. So one of the issues with um, Anita, the reason why she was in such a vulnerable place, is because the retailers that were buying the fabrics from her factory just didn't know that's where their fabrics were coming from. They weren't tracing back that far. They were making the claim that it was outside of their scope of responsibility, and it was too difficult to trace back there. So the majority of companies sat in that position in 2013, particularly in Australia. They just said, it's too hard. We're not going to do it. We're not going to find our fabrics. Because of all the pressure they've been receiving, by the 2018 report, 80% of companies are now tracing their fabrics. They're going back that extra step. In fact, more than 50% of companies are now starting to trace their cotton as well. So they're going all the way back to the farms. It's enormous progress that's come about because people have said, we can shape our world in a different way. We can purchase differently. Um, and it started to change things. So this slide here is a, just a snapshot of some of the companies we work with. Almost every company on that list has engaged with Baptist World Aid to think about some element of their supply chain. Um, I'll just take one person. Does someone have a favorite company up there that they'd like to get a quick glimpse about what they've been doing? Aldi. Aldi, a German company. It's fascinating because they, um, the Germans and the Europeans were doing much better than the Australians, and Aldi have been doing a lot. One of the issues that Aldi has is because, you know, most of the clothes that they sell, so we're just looking at their clothes, is in their specials group, so they're constantly changing suppliers. But what they've been doing is they've been trying to work in deepening the relationships with those suppliers, so going back to the same suppliers year in, year out. And they're doing okay, but there's... Because they don't specialize in clothing, they've got a long way to go. Um, so one of those companies that we think are doing an okay job, but probably worth putting a bit more pressure on. Um, I told this, I told the story of Cotton on in the morning service. I'll tell it again here. Company that, shocked by how bad their grade was to begin with, got a bunch of consumer pressure. People, rather than boycotting them for their grade, actually writing to them or going to Cotton On stores and handing in these little things, which I'll talk about in a second, and saying, look, I'd love to keep shopping here, but you need to do better. You need to improve your systems. 
that getting trickling up to the top of management and the management and their executive actually telling all their ethical sourcing staff, you need to work with Baptist World Aid. In fact, your KPI now is how well you go on their survey tool. Cotton on to the biggest fashion retailer in Australia now, most rapidly growing. Um, they've gone global and they'll constantly and openly say, we're working with you guys to improve our systems. Um, I get to the privilege of talking to their suppliers once every year or two to say, here's what you need to be doing to improve. Um, constant improvement, they're doing really well on slavery and child labor, where they need to pick up their game as paying workers a decent wage. Um, but it's one of those stories that ex show that we as the Baptist church, like not a massive denomination in the country, can have tremendous power when we choose to exercise it. I want to close with just one more story. Um, well, before I get there, this guide summarizes the work of that 100-page report in the fashion industry. We've got guides on the electronics industry. We've got information on the chocolate industry as well. Still, a lot of industries not covered. Um, but they're designed, they give companies a grade from A to F. It's just designed to help make it easier. Preference those companies that are doing better. If your favorite company isn't doing that well, take the opportunity to write to them, as people did with Cotton On, and call on them to do more. Because when we do that, huge change is possible. In this latest report, we graded a company called Outland Denim. Um, so they are a company with a difference. They actually worked with us before we graded them to think about how do they pay a living wage. That's what put them on our radar. Um, they, if I could go to the next slide, they, um, they started off in Cambodia seeing, as I think some of the ministries that you support work with, women have, that have been trafficked, recognized that people had been, these girls were in terrible conditions, and rather than asking itself the question, how do we earn more money, started with, how do we empower these girls? And they thought, denim is the way we're going to go about doing it, so they started making jeans with the intent of employing girls that had been marginalized or trafficked. Um, I talked to one of those girls, a girl named Sophia. And in Cambodia, if you've been trafficked, you're often re-victimized. Because once you're out of the trafficking situation, and you get some rehabilitation, your community still rejects you because of the stigma of what you were doing. This company took them in, gave them a community, and the first thing that Sophia said to me was that the thing I most like about working here is I've got friends. I've got a community. And on top of that, she started talking about how, what she could do with her income. She'd bought a block of land, she'd put a child in a private school, and she said she had hope for the future now. She, had that she, she said that she could feel like she could shape the life of her daughter to be different to the life that she's had to endure. It's an example of someone that's been able to shape their world in a different way because someone said, my business is going to share. It's not going to try to accumulate all the profits. It's going to be able to share the abundance of God's good earth. I think it's a good reflection of what we can do when we truly image God the way we're meant to. So I want to close in prayer, but leave you with that call. How do you think about the way you purchase so we can all share and shape this world together? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I, um, I give you thanks for your love for us, Lord. I give you thanks that we are created in your image to be people that co-rule this creation with you. May we not take the abundance that we have for granted, but to share it, Lord, and to help others to shape their worlds too. Lord God, help us to be more the people that you have called us to. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Uh, we do want to take a little bit of time, as we have the last couple of weeks, to do a bit of a Q&A, an opportunity for you to engage and ask uh, Gershon some questions that may have been raised uh, from what he's been sharing. So whether you've got some questions, and we'll come back to the, uh, all the uh, um, brands in a moment, and you can have a bit of a look at that. We'll just have the number here so you can text those questions. They go to Mark Coleman, and I'll refer to him every so often and uh, see how we go. Um, and as I said, we will bring up that screen in just a minute or two. But uh, Gersh, let me ask you, I mean, this, you, you've been with Baptist World Aid for 10 years. First one came out in 2013. Uh, so this has probably changed your role. Yeah, absolutely. It fairly has. significant. What, what percentage of your, of, your, of your job now is wrapped up with these fashion and yeah, electronic so, guides? So we're really, one of the things that I love about working at Baptist World Aid is they've seen the 
the potential of this project. So they've invested in building a whole team around it. So I manage that team. There's about uh, there's two people working in that team at the moment, both part time, and their role is exclusively focused on this project. This was this started off as like a 20% project of mine, so one day a week, um, and now we've got probably the equivalent of like 10 days per week focused on this project, and it takes up about 30% of my role. And uh, what brands do you buy these days? Yeah, that's a really good question. So these jeans are Outland Denim, so, you know, gave them a plug. Um, Zara is the top, and no, so this top was custom-made, the jacket is Zara. Um, so again, Zara's a fascinating company to think about because they're the largest clothes producer in the world. A lot of people blame them for the problems of fast fashion. They kind of, they and H&M sort of pioneered this idea of how do we get really cheap clothes to people really, really quickly, um, which caused lots of exploitation. But because they're so big, even though they created the problem, they've got more resources to invest in fixing it. So Yeah, great. Uh, just before we, uh, uh, we flick to the screen, if we can get to the screen with all the uh, brands in just a second, um, can I just say that this is a theological tool. Uh, sometimes we think about theology as a great big thick book with big words that you can't understand uh, that has no real bearing on anything apart from people who are interested in really big words. But that's to <laughs> completely misunderstand theology. Theology is when our thinking about God intersects real life. This is a theological tool. Uh, I think what Gershon had to say about uh, our being created in the image of God is really quite critical for us because it means that not just poverty and slavery uh, mars our capacity to participate with God, but things like sin uh, mar that. Uh, our wealth can mar that. And this helps us think and act a little bit more theologically to actually say what we believe about God matters so much that we're actually going to change the way that we purchase clothes. Uh, so take this theological tool home and read it. All, you'll know all the words, although some of the companies I've never heard of until now. Yeah, so I'm that's kind of intriguing. So, <laughs> so it shows where I shop, which is not very, not very many places at all. So... Um, you want to just talk a little bit about, uh, to start, like start and talk about H&M, just in terms of Zara and H&M and, yeah. and what's happening with them, and then we might throw it open for anyone who wants to know about their brand. Sure. H&M, um, second biggest company in the world in terms of fashion. They, they, begun this journey, they began this journey with us, and unlike a lot of the Australian companies, that sort of that, that Rana Plaza factory collapse was a huge wake-up call and you start seeing them invest more. Plus, they had the advocacy from groups of Baptist World Aid and people like you pushing them. H&M had already been on this journey. They'd already been doing a fair bit of work. Um, they, were, they had really good systems for slavery and child labour. Where they were falling down, and they're still not quite where we'd want them to be, but where we pushed them to think about is what are they doing about a living wage? Ensuring that people earn enough so they can cover the basics they need to survive and then have them maybe a little bit left over. Um, H&M have since committed that they've got th to have three pilot factories all paying living wages in an attempt to roll out all their supply chain with living wage in the next five years. They're way behind on where they said they should be, um, but at least they've committed to it and we're starting to see change. And if you can get one of the biggest clothing companies in the world to change, that's a huge win. Someone want to shout out their favourite brand from that and uh, we can give a pop quiz. 24-hour, so not just the regular Kmart, the 24-hour Kmart. <laughs> uh, Kmart's fascinating. So their, their CEO is a guy named Guy Russo. Um, he saw that factory come down and he said he was just shocked. He had no idea how bad the problem was. Um, we were obviously, he, they got a D plus in our first report, so a really bad grade. They just didn't have the systems. Um, but then they put on staff, they worked with us, they said, where should we be going in terms of improving our systems? Um, they started tracing their supply chain. They're probably one of the, for their price point, probably one of the best companies you can find. They're a B plus now. So D plus to B plus is a massive jump in five years. Um, tracing suppliers, we meet up with them maybe twice a year to talk about where we can go. They're now actually pioneering some of the environmental systems and trying to share that with the industry. So they're, Kmart's Odd. Again, for the low price point companies, the problem you keep running into is whether they can pay a living wage. Kmart are doing pilot studies. No one that I've seen at that price point is actually paying a living wage yet. But again, slavery and child labour, pretty strong. Okay, another one? Review. Review, yeah. Um, they got really cranky at us uh, after our first report. We gave them a hard F. They had no transparency about what they were doing. They didn't want to engage. 
Um, and they called us into their office and they dressed us down and said, do you know how many customers complained about our poor grade? I'm like, oh, I feel terrible for you. And then walked out and went, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, but they, the company that they were uh, connected to, DesignWorks and the Paz Group, um, they've since, again, started investing a lot. They signed up to the Bangladesh Fire and Safety Accord. They've been trying to trace the first tier of their supply chain, so rather than working through agents, they want to get direct knowledge of who their factories are. So they've done that, they've got auditing systems in place. For how expensive they are though, their customers are demanding a lot more from them. Um, because you expect quality when you're paying that much for a company, and they know that, but they're not there. Their systems haven't caught up to what people would expect of them. One more, and then we, do we have some questions? Yeah. So one more brand. ASOS and Cotton On. Uh, who, who wants to? I'll go Cotton On because I know their story a bit closer. Um, they, another company that got a pretty poor grade in our first report, had people come in with the fashion guide um, and drop it off in their stores and say, you guys need to do better. I love shopping here. What are you doing? Got up to the, the top of their management um, and their CEO at the time and their board gave them a mandate to say, you need to work with these ethical fashion report guys to improve your systems. So the last three years, I've actually flown, off, flown across to China to meet with all their suppliers um, and talk to them about how they can actually improve and what they should be doing. Um, Cotton On become very transparent. They publish all their suppliers at the first tier and second tier, so that's of fabrics as well. They've traced them all. They've got some great cotton projects. They actually do some development projects in Kenya. Um, and they are now the best-graded large multinational headquartered in Australia. Um, the only companies that beat them in Australia are like niche fair trade companies and companies like Outland Denim. Um, that are built from the ground up to be ethical. So again, great, still a value company, so that living wage piece is missing. Um, seems to be a trend for the industry, but something that we push a lot on. So there you go, eh? It's good. Some questions, Mark? So a uh, uh, question related to those who uh, make their own clothes, just whether or not there's investigation into companies like Spotlight and Linkraft. Yeah, it's a really fabrics. good question. I wish we had the answer to that. Um, we get that, like, for people that just buy their own fabrics, um, people, there's that big question, where are these fabrics being made? We've intentionally focused on the big retailers in Australia, but, like, obviously if you're making your own clothes, you know if you're making it yourself and it's ethical. Um, we've put together a template for people to ask their fabric producers the questions that they need to ask, but I don't know the answer. I don't know where Spotlight and Lincraft get their fabrics from. Um, but if you're interested in that, flick me an email. Go to the behindthebarcode.org.au website. You can find my contacts there, and I'll send you that template of questions. And then we're happy to work with anybody that actually proceeds to ask those questions to try to get to the detail of what those companies are actually doing. Great. Um, there's one question that was asking. Uh, they were part of a Facebook group um, where lots of people have been discussing the ethical fashion guide, um, and they've really wanted more details and information about... Uh, the companies, but in order to get the full report, they had to give all of their details, and some were uncomfortable to give them to a Christian organization. Yeah. Is there a reason why all the personal details are required to get hold of that report? It's a really good question. Um, so we used to just have it there as a downloadable link. We made, we spent some time processing what do we want to do with this report, um, and we thought it'd be great to get people's email addresses, because we want to bring people on a journey around ethical consumption. This is, I think this is fantastic, obviously. I'm part of the team that puts it together. It's still just a first step. Um, you heard at the intro all those different dimensions of consumption that we talk about. Um, so we get the details, we put them on our advocacy e-news list, and we try to broaden out that conversation, start picking up questions around fast fashion and consumerism um, and the impact that has. We're going to uh, talk about to them about the environmental issues as well. So we thought we made the call that it's better to take people on a deeper journey than to have more people access it more peripherally. So that's why we ask for the details. Cool. Now, you mentioned this is like a first step, and, and, and there's a bunch of stuff in that, isn't there? Like, it's, you know, if you start buying all your clothes from Cotton On or the A-plus rated companies, but you buy thousands of dollars of clothes every year and you throw out most of them, I think you're missing the point, right? Yeah. And so... Like what, what are, like, what are some second steps? Like, mm. if there are some people here, you know, maybe they've been looking at this for a while, it's become a, a theological tool for them, whether they knew that or not. 
they're trying to shop more ethically. What are some second steps to ethical consumerism that people could start to lean into or start to think about um, or engage with in some way, shape, or form? One of the uh, funniest articles I ever read about this fashion report was an SBS comedy article that said, like, look down its nose at everyone that had been judging her for wearing Supre all these years because they got, like, a B-plus in our report. Um, and she said, I'm just going to go on a shopping spree and splurge on Supre. Um, because, like, I've got the fashion guide to, that backs me up in doing that now. Um, it's not the point we were trying to get across. But we limit this to just talk about labour rights, which is kind of the focus of what I've talked about today. Um, a good second step, I think, is to think about the place that consumption has in your life. And that's probably a big second step, but we're in a, an audience and a group of people that come every week to start thinking about the meaning and purpose of life. Um, really examining where consumption takes place and intersects with you, those sort of questions that we touched on at the beginning, the questions that Jodine raised for us. Um, it's hard living out our faith radically in a consumerist society, um, being people that are radically generous with our time and our money. So trying to find ways to reduce how much you consume. When you do consume, absolutely preference those companies that are going to empower rather than exploit people. Think about things around the environment. Create space to be more generous. But more importantly, make sure that your buying, whether it's a house or a holiday, isn't taking you away from worshipping God. Great. Are there legal um, regulations that are emerging both here and abroad in relation to the grades that people are receiving um, in the I feel guide? Like someone set me up with that question. Um, yes is the answer. So one of the great things that this report has allowed us to do is there was a piece of legislation that came out in California um, about 10 years ago now calling on companies to be more transparent. Companies keep pushing back on us and saying, why are you asking us to do this? There's no legal requirement for us to do it. Stop nagging us. Then the legislation came out in the UK in 2015 called the Modern Slavery Act. We've been advocating for a Modern Slavery Act in Australia alongside other groups like Walk Free and Stop the Traffic. Um, we've been talking to parliamentarians. They've brought us in to talk about what shape that kind of act would look like. We now have bipartisan commitment for a Modern Slavery Act in Australia by the end of the year. Um, Guy Mia Baptist, there's people in your Catalyst group that have joined with us to campaign for a Modern Slavery Act in Australia. Um, and it's going to happen. So this stuff that is currently voluntary for companies to report on, by the end of the year they might get a grace period after that, they're going to have to start doing it as a matter of law. How's that going to change your report then? Make it a lot easier, um, which is great for us. Because like, so that one of the clear deficiencies for having all these companies publish all this information is that people then have to go sift through and analyse and try to work out what's going on, which most people can't. Um, but if companies are just publishing it and it's public for us, we spend heaps of time engaging with companies, days for some companies, and when you're doing 114 companies and you've got two part-time researchers, you get very, very stretched. If it's all up on the website and we set that as the new benchmark, um, we can go through companies a lot quicker. So for us, it's great. You'll probably see more companies, um, better quality data, because they're going to be more cautious about lying about it when it's a legal requirement. Um, so I think it'll help start changing things in a pretty significant way. One more question. Um, how can companies like Kmart slash Zara um, still sell clothes that are super cheap and provide a fair living wage? Yeah, I don't know. That's the big question. Um, that, and I've asked that directly to the companies. Um, they don't know either yet. Um, so it's interesting. In Bangladesh, for example, um, wages there are about 68 US dollars per month as the minimum wage. In China, the minimum wages are about 350 US dollars per month. So if you move, theoretically, if you move production out of China into all these different countries, you could actually absorb that into your cost. China's very efficient at making stuff, so there's a bit of loss there. But it's plausible that they could do it. Um, it's just most of them don't really want to, is the biggest issue. The extra cost for a t-shirt to make it ethically, you get varying estimates. Oxfam came out with an estimate saying it's about 12 cents. Um, I've seen others as high as maybe 70 cents, maybe $2 for a pair of jeans. But we're talking like small amounts, like yeah, yeah, laughter is the right response. We're talking nothing to see people paid decent wages. Um, 
But because companies are so focused on competing exclusively on price, um, they don't want to talk about that. Um, Kmart copped a bunch of flack because they were selling like $2 t-shirts. Um, back to school, they still do it. Um, Kmart and Target do $2 back to school t-shirts, which is a, which I worked out as just a bait and switch thing. They want to get you in the store so you buy other stuff. Um, and they're making a loss on it. But they were, people were asking the question, who's getting exploited to make this? Um, the nature of it is, people are always being exploited. We just don't see that. That shirt just brought it to light for people. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a journey for them. So there's probably there's something to it that if something is too good to be true... It probably is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Absolutely. So if you see something that's really, really inexpensive, yeah. chances are someone somewhere down the line... Hasn't, hasn't been paid yeah, yeah. for it, if you... Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Gershon, can you just reflect, just last, just last thing, reflect a little bit on what it's like to be part of... Like, Baptist World Aid is, is not that big of an organization, and yet it's been able to do some pretty remarkable stuff. Can you just reflect a little bit on, 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 on what it's like to be in a, a, a community yeah. of faith that's seeking to, to, to change the world? Um, I'll, I'll share two very quick reflections on that. First, the Baptist World Aid reflection... Um, it's pretty cool. I remember like coming up with like sketching out, hey boss, I've got this idea for this report. I think it might be get some broader interest in it. Putting the business plan together, and I said, oh, we might be able to change like the way four or five companies produce, and I think that'd be a great thing. Um, and then we launched the report, and it goes national, and it goes global, and we're sitting there going, holy moly, this is like the biggest piece of PR that the Baptist World has ever got, and it's having this huge impact. And it's just continued to grow each year by the grace of God. Um, it's amazing. It was for me. I was blown away by how much of a hunger there was amongst the church and in the broader society for people to start getting answers to these questions that we held so dear. One of the coolest things for me as part of this project, so Baptist All Day is a fairly small organisation. The Baptist movement is a fairly small movement in Australia as well. Like In terms of church movements, we're probably like third, maybe fourth, um, by the amount of people that turn up every Sunday. But I get asked this question consistently, like every year someone will ask the question, usually on national news, why, why is the Baptist church interested in this stuff? And I get to talk about how this is exactly where our faith compels us to go. The kind of God we serve is a God of justice that is deeply concerned about the people that are exploited, enslaved, and the children that are toiling to make our stuff. And of course we want to see that end, and that's why we're here doing that stuff. In the context of a church that's known for some pretty bad PR at the moment, the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, some of the pushback that we've got from our public stance on issues, it's nice to have something that's celebrated. I've really, really loved... Like it's a small part, but doing something for brand church, I guess. Um, it's been one of the favorite, my favourite parts of the job. Well, it's great. It's been great to have you with us. Uh, lives in Newcastle, got here very early this morning, has a wife, an eight-month-old son yeah. at home. So he's, uh, he's given us quite a bit today. Would you please thank Thanks, Gershon Mark. for being with us? Uh, we want to uh, wrap up our service by sharing together in communion. Uh, I hope that uh, the bridge to this from what we've been talking about isn't too, too great. I think it should be fairly straightforward. Uh, we believe that we have been created in the image of God and that creation is, by definition, an invitation to participate with God, right? Uh, that by definition, we've been invited to participate with Him in that royal prerogative uh, to, to rule and have dominion over the world. Uh, and as Gershon shared with us, not only poverty and slavery can affect us and, and mar our capacity, but what the Bible talks about is sin also mars our capacity to engage with God and what He's on about. Uh, and so when we're talking about something as big as ethical consumerism, if you just think about the clothes that we wear, I mean, we could, we could spend a long, long time becoming a lot more theological about that. It's probably not a bad thing to be recalled at the end of our time together about the, the very heart of our faith. And that is that Jesus came to restore to us our full humanity. Uh, by removing everything that mars our capacity and limits our capacity to participate with him in his plan to save the world. Which means that the centerpiece of what Jesus came to do was not just to save us, but to set us free. And not just to set us free from sin, but to set us free and set us loose 
into the world to be doing what he's on about. And, and so it's perhaps appropriate that we take just a couple of minutes and reflect on that. Uh, for some of us, you know, the things that, that limit our capacity to engage with the things of God are very, very clear. And there might be some time for you just in the quiet that will give you in a minute or two to reflect on the ways in which you have given into those things that limit us, uh, the things that are sinful and wrong and that separate us from God and all that stuff, uh, and to and be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ but also to reflect on the fact that in these simple elements of bread and juice, we are being set loose in the world. That that's what they were designed to do. That there was a function behind them that goes a far long way beyond just forgiveness, as important as and critical as that is. So if you're visiting with us tonight uh, and you count Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we'd invite you to participate with us. What we're going to do is this. In a moment, I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we're going to have some music playing. And just in the, the, the two or three minutes that we have, I encourage you to come down to the front. There's a, grab a piece of bread. There's a gluten-free option there as well and one of the cups of juice and return to your seats. And I'm going to give us just a few minutes uh, in, in kind of quiet prayer and reflection Take and eat that bread, take and drink that juice when you're ready, and then in a few minutes, I'll get up and lead us in prayer, and then uh, Jared and the team will come and lead us in one last song of worship. All right, so let me pray for us, and then uh, just give us a few minutes of quiet reflection to come on down to one of these two tables and receive those elements and go from there. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder of, uh, of who, who you have created us to be, participants with you uh, in the world. And we want to acknowledge and recognize that there are many things that limit our capacity to participate with you. Uh, poverty and slavery and our wealth and our greed uh, and our laziness and our envy and our anger and our lustfulness and all the things that get in the way. And we want to thank you that in Jesus Christ you have come to set us free from those things to restore to us our humanity and to open the door for us to be full participants with you again. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death and resurrection, for the forgiveness that it represents, for the freedom that it gives to us, and pray that you would bless these very simple elements of bread and juice to remind us of the profound truth, not only of our salvation, but also of the invitation that sits waiting for us to take it up to participate with you through the power of your Holy Spirit to see restoration and renewal in our world. So we pray that these next few minutes would be sacred and holy space for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We recognize ethical consumerism is a complex and challenging issue for our society. And here at GBC, we'll be continuing to unpack this with ongoing conversations. If you would like further information about the Ethical Fashion Guide, check out the website www.behindthebarcode.org.au or www.baptistworldaid.org.au. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.